Good morning. For students, uh, you, can, you are dismissed for your classes. Your teachers will meet you in the foyer, and parents can pick them up after the service. If you'd like to turn in your Bible to Exodus chapter 20, and I just want to uh, once again acknowledge Joe from Fish, who's with us here today. And uh, yeah, just say hi to him, introduce yourself after the service. Also, a couple other reminders, the uh, men's ministry has signups going for the Yale-Harvard football game. So if you're able to go, men, it'll be a great time of fellowship. We also have signups for the Women's Festival of Tables. And uh, yeah, so a lot going on, a lot of good things going on, a lot of things to praise the Lord for. Um, it is the end of daylight savings time, which means that the sermon today will be an extra hour. I uh, also just want to give a special welcome to any visitors we might have today. If you're visiting us for the first time or you've been here a couple times, I'd love to meet you. I always stand out in the foyer after the service. I'd love to, to shake your hand and say hi. And if you bring a visitor, I can't ask strongly enough to, to introduce me to them because I'd, I'd love to meet them. Exodus chapter 20, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 11 this morning. Looking at that passage now. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. If you go to a restaurant or a store or an online retailer, it's all about you, your tastes, what you want, how they serve you, your experience. They cater to you. Their entire goal is to serve you and make you happy so that you'll buy more stuff. And sadly, this attitude, this marketing attitude has come into the church in America. Too many churches have turned parishioners into customers and believe the customer is always right and cater to that. We've added bells and whistles to try to, to, try to make worship hip or fun. There are churches who do entire sermon series based on movie themes and popular culture. Pastors who have done things like riding into church on a motorcycle or a car. Churches who do giveaways to try to entice the audience. All of it is giving people what they want. In the process, our society traded authentic worship of the Lord for gimmicks and shallow theology. Some held their noses and knew that it wasn't great, but justified this type of church as a means to an end, whatever got people in the doors. But the issue in all of this is that our theology of worship impacts our theology of everything else. And when we treat worship like it's for us, how it makes us feel, how we like it, then we also tend to believe in a God who exists 
for us and for our whims. Worship should not primarily be about asking what the people want and catering to that. It's looking at what God wants and how God desires to be worshipped and worshipping Him in accordance with that. We're to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. And so when we have worship that sets aside reverence for God at the altar of being cool, when we treat the Bible like it's a self-help book to give us moral lessons instead of the eternal Word of God which reveals His will and righteousness and gospel, when we sing songs that focus on catchy choruses over songs which point us to God, His goodness and glory, when we treat communion like it's a chore that we have to do rather than participating in a practice ordained by Christ Himself, when we copy what the rest of the secular world does to impress people, we train people that God exists for us. Our main idea from our passage today is that our theology of worship impacts our theology of everything else. And that's true because we worship before we do theology. What do I mean? You worship before you do theology. It's similar to how you crawl before you can walk. And I'll preface this comment by saying that it's true for most people. There might be some rare exceptions, but before you begin to understand the grace of Christ, His death and resurrection, before you begin to understand more complicated doctrines like the doctrine of the Trinity, the two natures of Christ, the incarnation of Christ, before you do those things, you worship. You sing to God. You hear sermons. You see the worship service. You worship before you do theology, and your theology of worship influences your theology of everything else. If your theology of worship is man-centered, your theology of God will revolve around yourself. And so the manner of worship itself has an effect in training us how we view God. It's like how you talk before you really learn the formal rules of grammar. Our son Robbie's two, starting to say more and more things, and we're starting to notice he's putting together longer strings of words, starting to get some ideas about tenses and adding ing on the th like he he didn't learn all the rules and then start talking. He's kind of learning as he goes, and our theology of worship impacts how we view everything else. It impacts how we view God and His Word and His Gospel. At this church, our goal is to have worship that is centered around the gospel, faithful preaching of the word, obedience to the ordinances, baptism and communion, and music which points us to God and which is doctrinally sound. The ingredients in worship are simple, but they are no less profound because when worship is done right, it is meant to point us to God, who He is, His goodness, and His gospel. Real, authentic worship of the living God and that should be meaningful and powerful, but not because of gimmicks we attach to it, not because creative people concoct ways to make church feel especially dramatic or emotive. It's because of God Himself and that He is a good God who is worthy of our worship and praise. And the best way, really the only true way to worship God is to worship Him in the way that He has prescribed not as a punishment. 
It must also be understood that when I say we need to worship God in the way that He prescribes, worship is not something that God needs. God is fully self-sufficient, self-existent, whole, and holy. Our worship is not to boost God's self-esteem, but at the same time, the Bible tells us that God delights in us knowing Him. Psalm 147.11 says, The Lord takes pleasure in those who fear Him and those who hope in His steadfast love. Worship is fulfilling part of the purpose for why we were created. Because there is no other ultimate source of joy and meaning than knowing God and no better response to the knowledge of God's majesty and salvation than to come before Him in a heart of worship. And so it is for our own good and edification that we come to God and worship God as He has deemed for us. One thing that is seen time and again throughout the Bible is that God is not a God that we approach any way we want. The Lord is awesome and holy, and we approach Him with reverence, and on His terms, not on ours. And so today we look at a familiar passage, the Ten Commandments, and specifically we will be looking at the first four commandments. And the first four commandments all get at our relationship to God but they all also have implications for our worship of the Lord. In the worship documentary, Spirit and Truth, they summarize these four commandments as pointing us to the object of our worship, the manner of our worship, the attitude of our worship, and the time of our worship. And those four points will form our outline today, object, manner, attitude, and time. <clears throat> To give a little bit of background on today's passage, the Ten Commandments come at a time shortly after the Israelites had been freed from slavery in Egypt. They had been redeemed from slavery because they were the people of God to fulfill the covenant that the Lord had made with Abraham and for the purpose of bringing God's people to the promised land. The Ten Commandments are given very early in the Israelite journey to the promised land. These commands are the basis for the law of God, of Christian morality, and of the covenant that God made with Moses. And as I said, these first four commandments also have implications for our worship. With that, let's jump into the text this morning, and we'll look at the first of the four commands. Commandment one, the object of our worship. And we'll look at verses two and three. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. In the text, God points to himself as the one who brought Israel out of slavery. And that is given as the reason or a reason for why the Israelites are to worship the Lord. For us today, we can worship the Lord because he has forgiven us our sins through the work of Jesus on the cross. God has rescued us from the slavery of sin and brought us to freedom in Christ. The first commandment shows us that God does not, does not tolerate competition in our hearts, that He must be number one. Psalm 29 verse 2 says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. 
I realize that worshiping the figures who other religions worship is not necessarily a big temptation for us today. But that does not make the first commandment antiquated or any less relevant within the church. Because the object of our worship is ultimately the thing that is most precious to us. And we often create our own idols. We can give the right church answer and say that the Lord is most important to us. But for you, is He really? Is that true in how you actually live your life and view the world? Is that really where your hope and your delight and your meaning and purpose are? For some people, their ultimate hope is not God, but their hope is in their money. That's why they, what they look to for security. That's what they're really working for and hoping in. But if you worship money, you'll never have enough. And circumstances can change, and fortunes can be lost much more quickly than they were ever earned. For some of us, we make an idol of our spouse. We have all these areas of imperfection, and we look to a spouse as someone who can fulfill our needs. But that person is just as messed up and selfish and sinful as you are. A spouse is meant to be a partner, not a savior. We have all these other areas where we make idols, things like our health or fame, how we're perceived, learning, power, leisure, whatever it is. As John Calvin said, the human heart is a factory of idols. None of these things are inherently bad, but all of these things make very bad gods. But for so many, we treat these things as, as, as if they're what matters most. They matter, but they're not all important. Only an all-powerful, almighty, perfect, perfectly loving God is worthy to withstand the weight, to not just give life, but to give eternal life, not just give purpose, but to give eternal purpose, not just a way to live, but the true way of life. Worship starts with God. It's about knowing that God is at the center of everything and giving Him His proper honor as our creator, sustainer, and savior through the gospel. Psalm 95, verses 6 and 7 says, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God and we are the people of His pasture. We all have something that is most precious to us. It's a fact of human existence. There is always going to be one thing that matters more than all other things. And whatever that thing is for you is what you will worship. Our need is to worship God is to worship Him for all He is and for who He is. The second commandment gets at the manner of our worship. Going back to the text, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. While the first commandment gets at who we worship, the second commandment gets at how we worship. In his commentary on Exodus, Philip Ryken shows a distinction between the first and second commandments. The first commandment is about worshiping the right God. The second commandment has to do with worshiping the right God in the right way. 
The first commandment forbids us from worshiping false gods. The second commandment forbids us from worshiping the true God falsely. First and foremost, the second commandment teaches against making images of God and worshiping those images. Idol worship was a common practice in the ancient world and is still common today in many of the world's religions. The second commandment is about worshiping a God. The second commandment is about not worshiping God with something that we ourselves have fashioned. And that might sound archaic or pagan, but I would argue that even in our modern world, we do this all the time. We might not be making idols of stone or wood to worship, but that does not mean that idolatry is a non-issue today because we can just as easily create a caricature of God's character and worship that instead of worshiping the Lord for who He truly is. If we in any way undermine the righteous holiness of God, we are not worshiping Him for who He really is. We're worshiping something less than God, which is not God. When we choose to ignore His wrath towards sin, we are attempting to rob God of His justice and are, in fact, supplanting that with our own notion of justice when we pick and choose what sins matter. We are putting ourselves on the throne as the judge when we try to act as the ones who judge what is just. When we believe that there is any other way to the Lord except through the saving work of Christ, then we no longer believe in a gospel of grace. Instead, we believe either in a God who does not take sin seriously or in a false gospel that is based on our own works. When we disregard what God says in His Word or find ways to explain it away, we are putting our own wisdom over the wisdom of God. We are worshiping at the altar of self. And when we make church and worship revolve around our preferences and desires, we are creating a God in our own image. We are not appealing to the character of God, but to the whims of the world. God will not compromise on His holiness and glory. And when we make a caricature of God in our own heart and mind and worship that falsity, it is just as sinful as making a false image of God of wood or stone or clay. And so again, it might be really easy for us to not make a physical image and worship that, but we're just as capable of worshiping a false god in our hearts. Third commandment, the attitude of our worship, verse 7. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. The name of God itself is sacred. We are to have reverence for His name. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches the disciples to pray to our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The titles for God in the Bible are statements about His character. For instance, in Exodus chapter 3, when God appears to Moses in the burning bush and Moses asks God for His name, God says in Exodus 3.14, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Think about that name, I am who I am. God simply associates the verb for being with his name. He is pure existence, 
God is not becoming anything. He already is everything he can be. He's not dependent on anything. He's not the God who could be or would be or should be. He is. And we are to honor the name of the Lord. In Leviticus chapter 24, we see a story of two men within the Israelite camp getting into a fight. One of the men blasphemes the name of the Lord. And that blasphemy is treated as a capital offense. Think of how often today people take God's name in vain. For some of us in this room, think of how often you might take God's name in vain. But in Leviticus, a man is given the death penalty for this sin. Our initial reaction is probably to look at that and think that that's pretty extreme. Or maybe even feel tempted to judge God or the Bible for such a thing. Two thoughts. First, I think that reveals the rebellion of our own hearts. That it's not that God is wrong, but that we have an improper reverence for who He is. Second, it's pointing us to the holiness of the name of God. In treating the name of God with reverence, we are meant all the more to treat the character of God with awe and reverence. We must not use the name of God as though it's disconnected from His presence and power. Like the second commandment, there's a sense in which this third commandment is pretty simple to follow. Just don't say God's name in vain. But just as with the second commandment, and really with all of the commandments, we can even more easily violate it in our hearts. To give an example, Jesus touches on this in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 15, verses 8 and 9. He says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. People can talk the talk, but they're not walking the walk. Jesus is pointing to people who could give the right answer, but who had no heart for God. Having reverence for God in our words, but not in our lives, does us no good. That the reverence needs to come from an understanding of who God is. When we say the name of God, pray to God, think about God, then it needs to be in a way that honors God. And it's meant to, and it matters that worship reflect that attitude because our theology of worship impacts our theology of everything else. We have a holy God who we need to praise and honor appropriately because of who He is. Think for a moment about King Charles, the King of England. When people meet the British monarch, there's a long list of protocols that you're expected to follow. There are appropriate forms of address. You don't just walk up and say, hey, Chuck, how's it going? You address him as your majesty. You're not supposed to walk in front of the king if it's a meal. You're not supposed to take a bite of food until the king has taken his first bite. If you're exiting a room, you're never supposed to turn your back on the king. You're supposed to look at the king and then walk backwards out of the room. A long list of rules that you're supposed to follow. And this is for a person. He's not even our king. Yet, if you're invited and accept an invitation, it's expected that you follow these protocols, that there is reverence given to the King of England. And we're most certainly supposed to have all the greater reverence for the King of the universe. In Leviticus chapter 9, the tabernacle is constructed, and there's a service to consecrate the new tabernacle. 
which was to serve as the center of religious life for the people of God during their time in the desert. It was the place that represented God's presence with His people. It was a sacred and holy place. Quoting from Leviticus 9, And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting, and when they came out, they blessed the people. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the pieces of fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. This is a picture of appropriate worship as God has prescribed and ordained. And the chapter ends by saying that the people fell on their faces, that they had come to God in reverence. But in the very next chapter, Leviticus 10, it looks at worship in a way that does not honor God. Verses 1 and 2. Now, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. So these two men follow up the worship by offering unauthorized fire before the Lord when they had not been commanded to do this. And so God consumes them with fire. Once again, it's easy to think that that's just overly harsh. But it was God himself who had brought the judgment on them, and God is all just. We might try to have a casual attitude towards a holy God, but dishonoring the Lord in worship is a big deal. And every Sunday, all over the country and all over the world, there are churches who dishonor God, who worship in unbiblical ways, who preach cheap grace rather than the gospel, who resort to pandering to the masses and telling people what they want rather than teaching truth. And I bring out what so many churches in our culture do because it matters that we guard the faithfulness of our worship. It matters that we not succumb to temptations and drift. The fourth commandment, the time of our worship, beginning in verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." We are to have a day that is set aside for God. The commandment says that we should remember God's Sabbath, keep it holy, not do any work on that day. The rationale given is that it points back to when God himself, himself ceased from activity in creation. God created time and is sovereign over time. And there's also an act of faith to rest. Because rest is a challenge for many of us. But rest is spiritual. Hard work is good. But there can be a temptation to want to neglect rest. I talked about rest a few weeks ago in one of our other messages that, again, for many, I think it's one of our great spiritual struggles. But it's something that the Bible so often commands and calls us back to. If you read the Old Testament prophets, something that is constantly hammered on is the fact that the Israelites did not keep the Sabbath. They did not honor God. Honoring the Lord's day, though, is an act of faith. It's a matter of trusting the Lord that our work 
and labor done in six days is enough. That can be challenging. It can feel like we can't stop, that we have to do more and more and more. The Lord's Day is not a day to pursue our own goals and accomplishments, but to set aside to worship God. The fact that the Lord has set aside a day for us is also a reminder of the importance of community within the church. Because faith is not just personal. It's not just what we do on our own. But He's given us one day in seven to come together as His people to worship Him. In the New Testament era, up through today, we keep the Lord's Day on Sunday. This practice goes back to the time of the New Testament. Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday. And so the early church organized their week around that day. And every Sunday is a chance to come together and to celebrate the risen Lord. We make such a big deal about Easter. For some people, that's just about the only time of the year they go to church. But it's not supposed to be one special Sunday in the course of a year where we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. We're supposed to have one special day every week where we celebrate the risen Lord who has brought eternal life to all who believe in Him. That every Sunday is an opportunity to remember that the tomb was empty. Every Sunday is an opportunity to know that the cross was not the end and that there is life. But sadly, our view of a day of rest and to worship the Lord is often looked at like it's a punishment. Worship of God is often viewed as a punishment instead of as an opportunity to come before the living God and praise Him. That's not the way it's supposed to be. In the Bible, when people encounter God, there are different responses they give. But the one thing we never see is boredom. When we have a low view of the place of worship or fall into the trap of thinking we need to add to worship to make it more fun or interesting or moving, we reveal what we really think about God. God does not need a garnish. He is the eternal God of creation. Because our theology of worship influences our theology of everything else, may we also be committed to worshiping and approaching God on His terms. We've covered a lot this morning. I'm going to close with an encouragement. Sunday morning worship is an opportunity to gather with God's people, to pray together, to sing to God together, to hear the Word of God taught. And all of that is extremely important in the life of our faith. That importance cannot be overstated. And so coming to church should be the high point of our time with God during the week. But it should not be the entirety of it. And I know that for many, if not most people in this sanctuary this morning, that we do have good devotional habits and spend time with God every day. And that's wonderful. But for a moment, I want to talk to the people who don't. I'm really glad that you're here today. Sunday is important. But when it, takes, when, it, when it comes to taking time to be with God, having a time to have focus and reverence for God, learning from the Word of God, and coming to God with a heart of praise, that's meant to be a part of our everyday lives. And so is it for you? Worship is not a chore. It's not a punishment. It's the almighty God of the universe, 
inviting us to turn our attention to him. It's a reminder of who he is and who we are. It's an opportunity to look to the one who is the true and ultimate source of all that is true and just and good in the world. May we praise the Lord in spirit and in truth. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us worship, Lord, that in a fallen world you've given us an opportunity to focus on you, Lord, for just a moment to live on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, may we worship you the way you desire to be worshipped, because that is the better way. Lord, may we come to you with humble hearts, knowing that we have a good and loving God. Lord, for all of us today, I pray that we can continue every day of our lives to dedicate our hearts and souls and mind and strength to you in all we do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.